Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature Tim Gagline, a descendant of Macedonian immigrants. Gagline grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He was recruited for the George W. Bush presidential campaign in the year 2000, and with his wife and their two young sons, they moved to Austin, Texas. Beginning in 2001, Gagline ran the day-to-day operations of the Office of Public Liaison at the White House. During his seven years as public liaison, Gagline helped establish the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives and the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Today's message is leadership. It is truly a great pleasure and honor to be here. Anytime I'm outside the Beltway, I'm a very happy person. Um, I've lived there 15 years. I'm originally from the Midwest, from Indiana, uh, from Northeast Indiana. This is my parents. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I I have never uh, had one day of Potomac fever. Uh, I'm happy to be be, uh, in it, but not of it. Uh, And there's a lot of hot air in Washington. There's a lot of self-important people who think that leadership is writing news releases and holding news conferences. Uh, But that's not leadership. And I'm happy to say that I work for a man who's really uninterested in writing news releases and holding news conferences. And he's really interested in being a leader. And I'm going to talk about some of that this evening. Now, I was introduced by my new best friend as Tim Gagline, special assistant to the President of the United States of America and the Deputy Director of the White House Office of Public Liaison proving once again that the longer your title, the least amount of influence you have. (laughs) If you're the president, that's it. Um, I do have a very long title, but I promise you it's not the most important title to me. The most important title is Tim Gagline, follower of Jesus Christ. And, and, um, and also um, happily married to the woman I love for 13 years uh, and the father of two wonderful young boys, ages seven and five, Timothy and Paul. Um, so life is very rich and never dull. A little bit about me, if I may. I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My parents still live there. They've been married 56 years. Um, I um, am happy to say that I have two brothers and a sister, and we're a very close family. And I had uh, one of the most uh, unusual upbringings ever, I think, because when I was growing up around our dinner table, etc., um, we uh, would have fairly weighty conversations as a family. And as I was growing up, and I was raised as a Christian in a Christian household, uh, I would ask a question as a young boy, a number of questions. And my parents thought that they were doing the right thing in raising me by answering my questions with questions. And if my parents were here this evening, and I'm very close to them, I consider them to be my best friends next to my wife, they would say they made a mistake. Because I was raised in the 1970s and the early 1980s in the period of cultural relativism. 
what you think and what you think and what you think, it's all the same and there's lots of truths, there's not one truth. Uh, and you're free to believe what you want to believe and I can believe what I want to believe and it's America and it's really all about freedom, isn't it? And uh, my parents have come to have a lot of regrets as parents uh, because they say we raised you in such a way where we did not definitively root you in the one great truth that really exists which is the, uh, the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you that it all came together for me of all things on a Greyhound bus. That makes sense, doesn't it? I live in Fort Wayne and I should come to Christ on a Greyhound bus. But there you are. I was a freshman at Indiana University in Bloomington. And I had always worked in the media. I began working in the, in the media when I was 11 years old. I had a weekly television program that was funded by CBS. And I went on to have a weekly radio program for 15 years on Westinghouse Broadcasting. I was on a 50,000 watt AM station. I was heard in 28 states. Uh, and I really thought that that was pretty, pretty great. But um, I can tell you that on this Greyhound bus going to visit a friend of mine, um, I did something that all of us have done. And I know there's not a lot of young people here, but there's some. And this is what I'd like to say, that all knowing people, which is all of us, come to a period of our life where we have a long conversation with ourselves. That conversation might take place in a concentrated moment when we all remember it, or it may take place over time. But it's that period of our life where we ask ourselves the really big questions. What is life? What is the purpose of my life? What is truth? Is there a truth? What is the nature of justice? Is there a God? And if there is a God, who is he and can I know him and can he know me? And I remember as a young person having this long conversation with myself and coming to a sense as I was going from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Toledo, Ohio on a Greyhound bus. And I loved to read and I was reading at the time and I put my book down. And all of these big questions sort of came to me in a moment. And what really struck me is one single thought, which is this, that if God really did not come down to earth from heaven as a little baby, if he really was not born of the Virgin Mary, if he really was not innocently laid in an oxen stall, if he really did not grow up and have an earthly ministry, if he really did not unjustly uh, be found guilty and die on a cross, if he didn't really die, I mean, not just sort of proverbially die, or sort of die, but I mean, deader than a doornail, and then rise again on the third day, Resurrection Sunday, and then ascend into heaven to, raise co to, to reign co-eternal, with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but three persons as one God. I thought to myself, 
if that really didn't happen, if it really is what so many people unfortunately say that it is, which is the world's greatest myth, if that really didn't happen, I thought, then I'm living one large hallucination. I mean, if it didn't happen, I'm not me and you're not you, and there's not really a sense of objective truth, and it's all a fairy myth. But then I thought to myself, but if it is true, I mean, if this really did happen, and if the world really did change in the night, and if Jesus really was the Christ, then I'm a changed man. And I'm really not a freshman in high school on a bus to nowhere, but that my life is, uh, is sort of a joy in the journey, and that I really was born uh, because uh, Jesus determined that I should come to earth myself, not as God, certainly, but as a fallen sinner, and by his remarkable grace uh, as both sinner and saint. So when I got on that bus in Fort Wayne and got off in Toledo, Ohio, I was not the same man. Because during that period of time, sitting next to a gritty window by someone I didn't know, I finally said, Jesus, my life is yours and my heart is yours. Use me however you would. And uh, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, I'm very privileged, and I speak to you all this evening in a true spirit of humility, and I ask that you please take it in that spirit. I am privileged on a fairly routine basis to be with the President of the United States of America, who I think by every objective standard is the most powerful man in America and perhaps the most powerful man in the world. And I have a chance to walk in and go out of the Oval Office and I have a chance in one sense to walk on small h, hallowed ground. I think to myself, I'm walking through the East Room where uh, Abraham Lincoln and John Kennedy really did lay in state. And I'm really sitting in the Roosevelt Room where FDR made remarkable decisions in World War II, the ultimate decisions where he sat with Churchill night after night after night making enormous decisions that impact all of our freedom and our children's freedom and our grandchildren and on and on. It really is the place where John Adams lived and Thomas Jefferson entertained. It really is the place that Ronald Reagan came back to after saying to Mr. Gorbachev that he should tear down that wall. Pretty remarkable place. And you know, it's a, it's a remarkable thing because the first time I was in the Oval Office, I remember it was a beautiful January day in Washington. The snow was coming down very softly. The president had a fire going in the fireplace. There was the portrait of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, who the president thinks was the greatest president. So there's the two large portraits and the bust of Churchill. And the president is talking to me, and I haven't heard a word that he said because I can't believe that I'm sitting there. I do remember hearing the tick-tock of this beautiful clock. And... Um, and he came to me and I said, sir, I'm embarrassed to say uh, that I haven't heard a word you've said. And he thought it was really, really funny. I said, what are you thinking about, Gagline? He said, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. My maternal grandfather, sir, I said, um, came to the United States in 1916 from Macedonia. 
He came through Ellis Island. He was 16 years old. He was illiterate. He was enumerate. And he had four gold coins in his pocket, which probably by the currency of the day didn't equal $5. And uh, he had never been more than three miles from the place where he was born until his mother and father um, walked him to the end of the village road where he was born on a mountaintop in Macedonia. And um, he took four different ships to get to the United States of America in the midst of World War I. And he finally got to New York and he uh, told me all about coming through Ellis Island and seeing the Statue of Liberty for the first time. And he told me how loud New York was. And he told me until the last day of his life, he lived to be 84 years old, that the United States of America was not only the greatest country in the history of the world, but it was the place ordained by God that you could be anything you want to be. And I said, so I have to tell you, sir, I'm sure that what you've said is very important, uh, but this is really a moment for the grandson of an illiterate immigrant to be sitting in the Oval Office. Now, I thought a lot about that conversation, and the thing that I take away from it is two things that I want to share with you tonight. The first is that was a remarkable moment for me. But can I be very candid with you? The more remarkable thing is that, is that we have a God who allows us not once a day or once a week or on some time schedule, sort of like that Greyhound bus schedule, I suppose, but every moment of our lives, if we choose, that we don't have to have any special permission to go directly to the throne of the king. We can go directly to the foot of the cross. We can go directly into the presence of our living God. And you know what? We'll never have to worry about seeing snowfall or clocks ticking or worry that maybe we haven't said the right thing or the appropriate thing at the right time. Because we have a wonderful personal God who hears every single thing that we have to say to him. And I also realize that, you know, sometimes it's wonderful to be in the presence of God and not feel like we have to say anything at all. And to know that we've been given a heart uh, that by his mercy, God allows to uh, speak to him in other ways. And um, I have to say, if I had a choice whether to go to the Oval Office every day of my life or Buckingham Palace or whatever it is in any culture or go to the throne of grace whenever I want, I have to tell you there would be absolutely no choice for me and I'm sure no choice for you either. I have to tell you, we work for a president who sort of had a Greyhound bus experience and I know all of you have had one too. He got to the age of 39, which is my age, and he was drinking too much. George W. Bush knew that his drinking, his excessive drinking, was impacting his relationship with the First Lady, and it was impacting his relationship with his two twin daughters, Jenna and Barbara. And Bush 41, the President's father and mother-in-law have a have mother have a uh, summer home in Kennebunkport, Maine, where they go every summer. So they had planned this very large birthday party for the president. His birthday is July 6th, just happened. 
So the president, the current president, age 39, went to Kenny Bunk with his wife and daughters for his surprise birthday party. And as fate would have it, also visiting that weekend was Dr. Billy Graham, who was a very good friend of the Bushes. And although I would never try to imitate him, he said something along the line, son, why don't we take a walk by the sea? So Billy Graham and the current president, George W. Bush, took a walk along the sea. And I'm not really at liberty to discuss what was discussed between these two great men, but they came back to the house and the president let his family know that the man who went out to the sea was not the same man who came back. He made a commitment that evening to stop drinking, not to gradually taper off, but to never take another drop to drink. And he also recommitted himself to the life in Christ. And I'm happy to say that he's just celebrated his 57th birthday, has never had a drop to drink. His marriage, which was really impacted, was sewn up again. The relationship with his daughters couldn't be better. And I have to tell you, no one should have to be the, the daughter or the son of a president of the United States. But it wasn't because he stopped drinking that those relationships were repaired, because that's too easy. There are plenty of people who don't have drinking problems who have problems in their marriage. But this president knows that it was a blessing from the Almighty God himself who allowed him to stop drinking and repair the relationship with his family. Now I have to tell you, before 9-11, there was one operative word in politics. And you know what it was? Slick. It was cool to be slick, wasn't it? It was really a remarkable thing for a politician to walk into a room like this to tell all of you every single thing you ever wanted to hear, slap all of you on the shoulder blades, look you in the eyes, and then mosey on down the street to another auditorium, to a different group of people, slap them all on the shoulder blades, look them in the eyes, and tell them something completely different but to know that because you were slick, you could get away with it. I want to tell you folks, I think we can put slick in a shoebox and take it to the Smithsonian Institution because slick is out and resolution and leadership is in. <clears throat> no more pizza boxes in the Oval Office. No more ripped jeans in the West Wing. No more barefoot, no more dirty language. That's out. That's out. <laughs> we had a group of young people come to the White House very recently. And I'm going to share something with you, which was um, people always say, what's the greatest experience you ever had? I want to share with you the worst experience I've ever had. The worst experience I ever had was to have a group of 150 fellow Christians, young people, ages 18, 19, 20, come to the White House. And several of them, without trying to be rude, asked people, where's the Monica room? 
children pay attention. I've learned this as a father. Um, I know there's lots of parents here and lots of grandparents. Being a, um, a, a parent of two young boys, my wife and I have been told for years, uh, children really know things, just remember that. And our, our thought was always, how much can they know? Boy, were we wrong. They know and they observe everything. They overhear it in conversations. They overhear it uh, on television and on the radio, etc., etc. We have a whole generation of young people. And this generation, by the way, gets a terrible rap. And I think it's wrong, by the way. But we have a whole generation, you have to remember, that has been raised in a vacuum of a certain culture that, that said certain standards are okay. And we all know as Christians that cultures are not like light switches. You don't turn them on and off. There's a lot, there's a lot of work to do with regard to this culture. I could come in here tonight and tell you all about the policies and all the politics of George W. Bush, and I would bore you all to tears probably. Can I honestly say, more important than politics and more important than policy is personal leadership. It's the moral caliber of the leader. He sets the standard, and his benchmark can either be high or it can be low. And it has a direct bearing on the health of our country, on our culture, and on our civilization. The president has a favorite painting. It's called A Charge to Keep. And it's a painting that hangs in the Oval Office. It's his favorite painting. Based on an old Methodist hymn called A Charge to Keep I Have. When you look at this painting in the Oval Office, let me tell you what you see. You look at the canvas and you see the look of a terrified horse. You don't know why the horse is afraid but this great sense of anxiety and fear is palpable in this painting. And the next thing you look at is the writer. And the contrast in the faces between the terrified horse and the calm and the resolute man on the horse is astonishing. You don't know what situation they're in, but you know that it's fraught with danger you know that horse is emblematic of the fear. But you also know that the man who is riding the horse is the leader and he's unafraid. They're going up a craggy hill in this painting. And the first thing that strikes you and the last thing that strikes you about a charge to keep as a painting is that that person, that writer, is serving something bigger, deeper, and more important than himself. That's the concept of leadership. You don't know if he's leading five people or 5,000 people, but you know he's the leader and you know he's resolute. And I have to tell you, no one ever thinks he's going to work in the White House, particularly working in the White House during a time of war. And no one could have known, with that painting as the president's favorite, that that painting would become a symbol of the Bush administration. 
we are living in momentous times. And I know there are people in this audience who are veterans of the Vietnam War, of the Korea conflict, of World War II, and of the Cold War. And I think all of you will agree that having lived through the 20th century isms of communism and fascism, that the war on terrorism is equal to those two and perhaps bigger. I do not feel uncomfortable that George W. Bush is our president at this time. I actually believe that he was chosen for a time such as this. I really do believe that. <laughs> Elliot Cohen, who is one of the top historians, diplomatic historians in the country, has written a book called A Charge to Keep, Supreme Command. And in this book, he looks at the leadership of Abraham Lincoln, George Clemenzo, Winston Churchill, and David Ben-Gurion, the founder of modern Israel. He looks at the leadership traits of these four great men, and he draws conclusions about each. He recently came to the White House, and after his lecture, I said, may I speak with you for just a moment? I said, does the president's leadership rise to that level? And he said, it's young in your presidency, but this president has the makings of greatness. I said, what is it about George W. Bush compared to these other great men? And he said one thing, without even batting an eyelash. He said, it's the president's faith. <laughs> this is what the president himself said. I believe in grace because I have felt it, and I believe in forgiveness because I have need of it. There is a humility of spirit there, and I find that very refreshing. I can honestly say that George W. Bush is a genuinely modest man. I think most of this comes from his religious faith. I honestly do. But you know how I would define that? I would define it as this, that his sense of the smallness of man compared to the vastness of God is what really denotes this president's faith, and it's what motivates him. And I mentioned to you that the president is in Africa, and I was saying to my new friend that to understand the vastness of Africa where the president is today is a hard thing to even imagine. The flight from Andrews Air Force Base to Senegal was shorter than the flight from Senegal on the African continent to Pretoria, South Africa. Seventy percent of the AIDS cases in the world are on the African continent. And more of them are in South Africa, where the president is tonight, than any place else on planet Earth. And this week, to begin his trip to Africa, the president gave a speech which you may not have even heard of. Without any exaggeration, I think it's one of the greatest speeches the president has ever given. He went to a place called Gori Island. 
This was the embarkation point for the slave trades to America. By the way, there were slaves in America before the Pilgrim Fathers. The president went to Gory Island, which is a very hard place to go, and he looked and walked through the slave house, the place where literally thousands upon thousands of slaves came to this country. The president, however, did not go to Africa to say, I'm sorry, or we're sorry. He wanted to express not only a great national apology or regret for this, but he wanted to put it in a Christian context. This is what he said. As a result, by a plan known only to Providence, the stolen sons and daughters of Africa helped to awaken the conscience of America. The very people traded into slavery helped to set America free. Although their ancestors did not ask to play this role, African Americans forced America to live up to her promises and her potential. And the president focused on Christianity's crucial role in this chapter of American history. In a story filled with ironies, this indeed may be the greatest. Not only were the leading abolitionists Christians, but slaves adopted the religion of their captors, made it their own, and turned it into an instrument for their own emancipation. The president noted, and I quote, in America, enslaved Africans learned the story of the exodus from Egypt and set their own hearts on a promised land of freedom. Enslaved Africans discovered a suffering savior and found that he was more like themselves than their masters. Isn't that remarkable? Now you can bet that the national media will savage the president for saying this. You know that Newsweek magazine did a cover called Bush and God. And there was a man who called the president a Christian thug. The wonderful thing is that the president's faith is so much larger and so much deeper and so much more secure than any epithet that anybody could ever throw at him. Because he knows and he trusts that the heart of any great narrative ultimately is redemption. And this story, the one that I just told you about Gory Island, is filled with both redemption and hope, isn't it? It's the heart of the story of the Exodus, of the Babylonian captivity, of the cross, and ultimately, I suppose, of African slavery. And the reason it's the heart of a good narrative, as the president so well knows, is because it is the heart of the gospel itself. And as I say, you can bet the president will be savage for saying all these things. I want to close on this note. The president is told every day of his life by email, by letter, by telephone call, by individual interaction, I suppose by smoke signals and pigeons, from people just like you, really, really good, terrific people just like you. They come up to him, and I've seen it so many times, and you know what they do? They stick out their hand like this and they say, Mr. President, we're praying for you. And they'll grab him and they'll, hug, they'll, they'll give him a big hug. 
And if the first lady is there, they'll give her a kiss on the cheek. Some people will walk up to the president and they'll hand him a small Bible. Or they'll hand him a copy of their favorite verse from scripture. Or they'll just give him a big slap on the shoulder blades and say, we're with you, Mr. President. We're really praying for you. God bless you. I promise you, my friends, if somebody came to the president with a kilo of gold or a Ming Dynasty vase or some other gift versus the same sort of thing I'm just describing to you, that humble sense of we are really praying for you, Mr. President, I can tell you every time the president would prefer the offer of prayer. He really feels it. He's really benefited from it. I know that all of you are in churches where the president is prayed for daily and weekly and so forth. I want you to go back. I'm asking each and every one of you to go back to your churches, go back to your neighborhoods, go back to your campgrounds, and tell people, tell people, not only how much the president and all of us in the administration, how much we appreciate your prayer and how, how heartfelt that is from all of us. But go back and tell them that it's working. Because prayer works. You've been listening to Tim Gagline. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.